0: Kings chapter nineteen is where we're going to pick up tonight, uh, and Ahab told Jezebel that Elijah had all that Elijah had done, and also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. So for context, Elijah's just bested eight hundred and fifty false prophets, and then and then killed them and executed them. Uh, and it came to pass that. The heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So we ended the last chapter with Ahab leaving Mount Carmel to go back and Elijah like running ahead of him on foot which if you're a chariot versus foot I get this like idea this cartoon character where the feet are moving so fast. There's a little cloud under him. Remember those old bugs, bunnies? And Elijah has this race. But the Bible doesn't give us any reason for this. Um, so then one thought is, well, if, this, if that's a miracle, like why is that there? Why did he have to get ahead of Ahab? He doesn't get to Jezebel first. Um, so it's kind of an odd little thing that he just decides to run until you get through the chapter. And I think this is the thing we're going to see. Elijah was so revved up after the beating the prophets of Baal. I mean, he'd been so kind of like on the run and in hiding for so long. I think he's super excited. It's that mountaintop, literally the mountaintop experience. And he's just, he's so excited he's got to run. And he's just, in this moment he's there, and what's going to happen is he's going to go from the mountaintop, and in this chapter he's going to go right to the valley, right to this extreme depression, right after he has this huge victory. Um, So I think this is one of the better examples in the Bible of seeing what that looks like. That we get a spiritual victory, and then it goes right back to a spiritual valley. And this is kind of what happens. So the running thing is kind of this, I think the Lord doesn't tell him to run. The Lord doesn't tell him to get out ahead of Ahab. It's not an odd thing. It's not even necessarily miraculous. There's people in the Middle East in this era, that would do easily do a 14 mile run as a messenger. So it's not even an uncommon thing that of what this looks like. Um, so some argue that possibly this is just actually a natural thing, but it still indicates like this excitement for Elijah, that he's super excited about what happened for good reason. So then he has a thing the fire comes from heaven, burns up the altar, the false prophets are gone. It might be that Elijah's thinking to himself, well, this is it. Israel's going to finally turn back to the Lord. We got a revival on our hands. The elders of Israel got rid of these false prophets, and now we're going to all turn back to Yahweh. And then you get to verse 2. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them, the prophets that got killed, by tomorrow at about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. This is the quickness with which he's running towards everything with all this excitement. And then Jezebel doesn't convert. In fact, she's so resolute that even though there's no priests left, she wants to kill Elijah and she sends a message to tell him that. So you get Ahab, you get the image that Ahab's not the one who matters in this story like he doesn't carry the power of the kingdom, he's not in charge of anything, he goes whichever way the wind is blowing and he gets home tells Jezebel about it Jezebel sends a note to Elijah which gives Elijah just enough time to get the heck out of there. So he runs for his life. Instead of standing strong. Like he just stood against 850 priests, but he can't stand against one angry queen. And it's an odd it's just an odd kind of image of what's going on. Verse 2 says um Clearly, that she, she's saying, let the gods do to me. Jezebel's belief in the gods hasn't changed a bit. She, maybe she wasn't even on Mount Carmel. She didn't see what happened on Mount Carmel. But it doesn't really matter, because seeing a miracle doesn't convert somebody's heart. In fact, sometimes seeing a miracle just makes people more resolved, because they see that there's actually a battle that's pitched there. There's, there's a difference between things. So there's a contrast in character for Elijah. We could see Elijah as one of our heroes but we can also see him as just ready to be easily scared off by this whole situation. So we see this idea that he rose and went. He saw, he rose, and he went. There's an emphatic here that he's going at a full sprint. The distance from Jezreel Valley to Beersheba is about 80 miles. So the distance that he ran in fear is much greater than the distance he ran with enthusiasm. But either way, you're talking about 94 miles worth of running, which would exhaust anybody in any period of history. So there's a fatigue that's hitting in what's going on right now. Or he's recognizing that he's going to be foolish to stick around, and he runs off again. So perhaps Elijah has lived so far away from people for so long that maybe he just doesn't understand court politics. Like, at one sense, you get the sense that maybe Elijah doesn't have very good people skills, right? And Because he clearly didn't get along with the prophets of Baal. He's he, he said a couple times, I'm all by myself, when it says he let his servant go at the end of verse 3. So he had a servant with him that he doesn't seem to acknowledge or recognize. And his relations with Ahab haven't been very productive. So it could be that Elijah's just not particularly good with people. And he spends a lot of time out in the wilderness. So verse 4 says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, that's past Beersheba, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It's enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. There's a deep depression that settles in with one of the greatest prophets we've seen in the Bible. And I think this is an interesting thing, especially for people that struggle with depression, because we can unpack here, how did he get into this? But we can also unpack, how does he get out of this depression? And so we can learn a lot about this kind of positioning that people of God can have. It's sad to have a hero of courage, so bold and so strong, not looking very courageous at all. It's also something, and I think this is an interesting way to look at it, biblical heroes often fail at their greatest strengths. The thing that makes Elijah great is the very thing that the enemy attacks. Charles Spurgeon, quoted by Dave Gusick, says it this way. In Scripture, the wisest man proves himself to be the greatest fool, Solomon. Just as the meekest man, Moses, spoke hastily with bitter words, Abraham failed in his faith, Job failed in his patience, and he was the most courageous of all men, flees from an angry Jezebel so Moses hits a rock when he shouldn't hit one David has built the mighty men but destroyed his own family giant valleys follow giant victories and it's a pattern that we've seen and Elijah's story isn't done yet but the valley is part of his story God needs him to break because the thing Elijah maybe struggles with here is pride and he needs to break the pride of Elijah for the rest of the work and the rest of the story to move forward Depression is almost always when you look too hard at yourself instead of keeping your eyes on the Lord. So Elijah's thinking of his own safety with Jezebel and he runs away from Jezebel. So, in doing that, it provides a situation where we're going to see that the Lord is going to continually break Elijah's spirit until he can use the humble position to move Elijah forward. If you want to plant a seed, you got to break the soil. You actually have to, the soil has to break the seed. When you you grow crops, you have to break the weeds and harvest the plants themselves by breaking the plants. If you want to then mill it, you got to break the kernels. At every point where this growth and production happens, there's a breaking that happens too. And so Elijah's there. He's under a broom tree, it says. Uh, In the wilderness of the Negev, this is a hot, dry area. Broom trees grow all by themselves in the middle of nowhere. Notice that he travels for quite a time before he finds this broom tree, about enough shade for one person. Usually under broom trees in the Middle East, the Middle East, you will find a little family of lizards because they love these things. So at most broom trees in the Negev Desert, you'll find five to six lizards living under the tree. And I'm talking the big ones, like the, these lizards. So when you go under there, he would be sitting down, but he'd be hanging out with a little family of lizards, or he'd have to shoo them off if he wanted to be there. So here's the thing, and then he, then he goes on, and again, when we pull this apart, we can see that there is a pattern to when we fail. The first is to blame God, Another other options to blame other people, Another other options to blame yourself, but then there's choice number four, which is to just move on, and Elijah here seems to be just blaming himself, and he's picking that option, and I think the blame thing doesn't work in any regard, but it is. He says it's enough. What's enough? He's been going, getting fed by birds, getting fed by the widow. He's been going years trying to do something for Israel and live for the Lord. And at this point, he's just like, I'm done. I want to retire. I'm over. I've had enough. So he goes out to this desert. It's a good place to die because without food, you will die. And he's bringing this before God. I think, frankly, if anything in depression, the best thing to do is take all of your anger and thoughts to God. He's a big enough God. He can handle your thinking. He prays that he might die. The prayer of of being one of Elijah's strength is now absolutely turned upon himself. Remember, he's the guy that prayed for for the altar to light up, and then the altar lit up. He's the guy that prayed that the rain would stop and the rain stops. He prays the rain's going to start and the rain starts. But now he's actually praying to get killed. Thankfully, God doesn't answer that prayer. In fact, of all the people in the Old Testament, Elijah's never going to die. And it might be because of this particular prayer that that might be the ways God is going to get back at him is, no, you're never going to get to die. Um, So he's going to be caught up or raptured instead of actually going through death. The enemy loves to attack his servants exactly where their strength is. So with Elijah, that's prayer. It's courage. And that prayer itself becomes out of it. The other thing is he's so self-deceived that he starts thinking thoughts that don't actually exist. He says, I'm no better than the people that came before him. What a weird thought. Was it his intent? What a deception this is. Is the goal of Elijah to be better than the people before him? Or is his goal supposed to be to serve the Lord? So again, he's comparing himself to other people. I'm no better than others. Oftentimes, depression is a high focus on yourself, or it can be a focus on other people too. And comparing yourself to others is never a good place to start. So perhaps he wanted to convert Israel, Ahab, Jezebel, and he would be better than his predecessors if he was able to do it, because since Jeroboam, nobody's been able to bring Israel back on the right track. So maybe he's thinking that could happen. And I think application-wise, and I I know I'm pulling apart this depression thing a lot, if we want to serve the Lord, the Old Testament shows us that that always comes with trials. It always comes with those. It comes with dark times. Hebrews chapter 11 is all about that, right? It it always comes with a challenge when you want to serve the Lord. There's going to be a battle in front of you when you do it. So God has to work on his servants to be effective in those battles. And sometimes that has to do with changing those perspectives, which we can see that Elijah has. He's comparing himself to other people before him. He's praying for his own death. And he's wore out on his own strength and says it's enough. And here's the truth of those things. You don't have enough strength to get through it. Here's the truth of it. You are going to die. We all are dust and we're all going to die. And here's the other thing. Being no better than other people is not a bad thing. That's No, you're not any better than anybody else. So Elijah's taken all three of those things and just slightly twisted it to the point where he's, he's despondent about them things. But Satan thinks things that are kind of half true and just twists them just enough to make the person miserable. And he's trying to destroy Elijah. So Elijah speaks kind of truths in that he is no better than other people. He is just a man. But we simply, in this sense, is too limited to understand what God's plan is at this point for his life. And from the human perspective, Elijah just can't see what's next. Well, Elijah or Jezebel's not getting converted, so I must have failed with my entire ministry. That's exhaustion. That's low energy because he was so enthusiastic, running about like willy-nilly after his big success, that he burned himself out. So you get this idea. Exhaustion, which he's got after 84 miles of running, comes with low energy, irritability, usually accompanied with headaches. It actually can impede for the rest. You can, there's this thing as being overtired, where you're actually not getting sleep, even though that's what you need. And, it, and exhaustion always comes with irrational thinking. If Satan can't beat you on the Mount Carmel, he'll beat you with exhaustion. If he can't beat you with discouragement, he'll beat you with too many opportunities. And it's an equally effective way to take out a champion of God. And we can learn this. And I just, this is why we have stories like Elijah. We can see these. Looking back at Elijah's run then, which God never commanded him to go outrun Ahab, But in doing that, Satan was already working on Elijah to wear him out. And if you can wear him out physically, you can wear him out spiritually. I wonder if exuberance and victory then is part of the exhaustion we see here. And we see Elijah just getting wore out. Verse 5 then. How does God renew Elijah? And to me, this is the most interesting part of the chapter. How does God take Elijah from this despondency of, I just want to die to a point where he's actually serving the Lord again. So we're going to watch God do that with a person. So verse 5, Then he, Elijah, lay and slept under the broom tree with the lizards. And suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Because the journey is too great for you. See how he just countered one of those mistruths? Journey is too great for you. You know, you're right. You can't do this alone. You are exhausted. So the messenger in verse 2 is the word moloch. It's the exact same word in verse 5 for angel. So one of the things in the Old Testament, and this is an interesting thing in the English translation, there's a messenger that gets sent in verse 2, moloch, but the context is clearly earthly. But here in verse 5, they use the word angel, but the same word messenger is being used, but it's clearly a spiritual messenger being used in verse 5. So in the English, they use the word angel for that. Same word. This one then, in in, in the angel here, and even in verse 7, is then of the Lord, which clarifies this is a spiritual messenger. It's somebody coming straight from God, not an earthly one. In other words, God has messengers too, and he uses them. So total contrast. In the New Testament generation, Jesus said he's going to work through the church. So oftentimes when the Lord puts on us a spirit or we're just sitting around and we think of somebody else in the body and we're just praying for him, it's a good thing to contact each other and say, hey, the Lord just put me on your heart and I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. And it's amazing when you act on those spiritual nudges, the degree to which God uses us as messengers for one another and we arrive at just the right time with just the right messenger, and it happens within the body all the time. So total contrast between these two messengers. One messenger brings bad news, the one from Jezebel to Elijah. The messenger from God brings encouraging news and actually sustenance. The broom tree is a rockman tree, prickly and thorny. It's a broom tree not because they make brooms out of it, but because it looks like a broom stuck in the ground. with It's, it's just a single trunk usually. So God addresses the physical needs. When God does revival work with Elijah, verse 5, God first provides a tree for him to sleep under. So just take a break and rest. When people come and they're exhausted and they come to Bible study or come to church, one of the things we often tell people is just relax. Like, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't have to show us how religious you are. Just take a deep breath and be blessed for a while. Just rest. Come into church and just renew yourself. So Elijah's able to sleep. So then he says, arise and eat. The second thing God does is he feeds him. Um, <laughs> and, and one note, and this is kind of incidental, it says that the messenger touched him and said to him. In other words, there's somebody there that apparently is in human form. And this human form thing incidentally then brings companionship. One of the best things you can do would bring somebody out of that thing where Elijah's saying, well, I'm all by myself, I'm all alone, is counteract that by not letting the person be alone. Just checking in on you, arise and eat. Cake uh, baked on coals is a really specific um, kind of thing that happens in the desert. What you do in the desert is you dig a hole and then you actually put coals or ash in the hole and then you put the food or the bread in and then you cover it all up. So you bury your bread in the dirt but you bury it with hot coals, which creates a little oven in the thing. So the reference to this is interesting because it really is a legitimate thing that happens in the Negev. So there's a cake, there's a fire, there's a jar itself, and then there's water being provided. That's four things that have been manifested that weren't under that tree when Elijah got there. So part of what the Lord does, notice that the Lord doesn't rebuke Elijah for being despondent and you know, I think sometimes as Christians we do that. Somebody's depressed and we just yell at them, shut up and stop being depressed. Buck up, camper, get out of it. And you don't see the Lord rebuking Elijah at all or counteracting or arguing with these mistaken thoughts. They're rational thoughts cuz he's exhausted. God deals with the exhaustion first. This is not just brilliant, it's 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 merciful. So, he bakes things on coals, he makes some food. I, some people bless people like this, and, and really intuitively, somebody's feeling down, and it's like, I'm going to make you a cake. And this isn't like a birthday cake. This would be like a kind of bread that you cook in the desert. The preparation then isn't noted here, but it implies that the messenger was there long enough sitting with Elijah while he slept to bake bread. Or at least Elijah woke up and the bread was ready to eat. So I think it's interesting that God's messenger spent time with Elijah, without waking him up. Just letting him sleep and letting him get rest. And you can imagine he just kind of sat there, found a stump and started digging the hole and scratching out at this kind of thing. So he does as he's commanded. Elijah really isn't doing anything other than obeying what this messenger is telling him to do. He says, arise and eat, he arises and eats. God's commands are really simple with people when they're in the valley. Really simple, really basic. So he ate and he drank and then he lay down again. Through the lens of renewal... He's just getting caught up with his his energy. He's being well-fed and he's being rested. Elijah doesn't seem to be surprised at all. So notice Elijah's faith here. He doesn't wake up and go, who are you? What's going on? There's no conversation like that. He wakes up and somebody says, arise and eat, and he just does it, and there's no conversation. I think it's interesting that after years of being fed by a bird, and years of having the the thing go undrained at the widow's house, Elijah seems to be perfectly okay with a messenger showing up in the middle of the Negev. Like, there's no shock or surprise. His faith is solid, even though he's depressed. He doesn't doubt God. It's a good question when we're dealing with somebody who's depressed. Like, are you depressed in that you're doubting that God's there for you? Or are you depressed in just that you're down and you're low energy? And there is a difference between the two. I'm down in low energy. I know there's a God. I know he's in charge. And I think that's where Elijah's at here. There isn't a crisis of faith going on. There's just a crisis of energy and hope. There's a recognition of God's ongoing provision and his companionship. And he wakes up and he's like, oh yeah, God still loves me. And you can see that Elijah renews. It says, arise and eat because the journey's too great for you. In the second provision or the second nudge to wake up, God reminds him that there's still a journey ahead of him. That gives him hope. I mean, you can just see how God's systematically renewing Elijah. And the next thing he had, adds Elijah is hope. You can go a lot of time without food and water. You really can't go very far spiritually without hope. What's coming? I got a brother who was just thinking like his life was over about, a year, about six months ago because he had had some bad things happening. He's like, man, it's all just destroyed. And the one thing we can do as believers is say, yeah, it may look that way right now, but God's not done with you. And I don't know how to fix it. I, you, yeah, this is a mess. I agree with you. But God's not done with you. There's still a journey in front of you. So it's time to rest. It's time to relax. There's more journey. It's a polite way to say, Elijah, you're not dead yet. It's a polite way to say, I'm not going to answer your prayer. Because <laughs> the prayer was, please kill me now. And the answer is, no, there's still quite a journey ahead. You should eat some food. Second thing is, another polite way to say that, you know, he said, I'm no better than anybody else. And to say because the journey is too great for you is to say, yeah, you aren't good enough. And I think to acknowledge that truth is a good step to get past depression. You aren't good enough. Own it. And if you can own that situation, you can then move on with life. It's the same thing with sin. Until you admit you're a sinner, you really can't move on with humility and submission to God. It's a huge roadblock. So just that idea of, yep, the journey is too great for you. You can't do it on your own. And maybe Elijah was trying to do it on his own with Ahab and Jezebel. And that was the problem. Not that he had a failure, but because he was trying to do it and he didn't let God have the victory. So any great adventure, quest or deed is actually too great for humanity. That's why it's a great quest or adventure or deed. Is that it is too big for us. What else is worthy of our time than tasks that are just too big? So it's not clear if Elijah knows where the journey is or what's coming next. He doesn't even ask. Verse 8. So he arose, he ate and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that for food for 40 days in 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. He travels even further south. At this point, we're way down in the Sinai Peninsula, and the mountain of God, or Horeb, another name for that mountain is Mount Sinai. The last time we were at Mount Sinai, in the narrative of the Bible, was back when Moses was here, as he was getting out of Egypt, back in Exodus. So this is, this is a really key location, possibly one of the key locations for Judaism on earth. And Elijah wanders down to this spot, It isn't settled because it's a giant desert. Nobody wants to live there. Even today, it's a big, wide-open piece of territory. Nobody's really settled this area of the world. Sometimes for renewal, again, you can read so much into this journey, sometimes for us to get our spirits back, we return to where God met us last. And by going back in time a little bit and Elijah going back to Mount Sinai, he's going to where God let the fire hit the mountain. The last time the fire hit the mountains since he just did it on Mount Carmel with Elijah. And man, I'm just not feeling the Lord's presence. So you go back to something when you did feel the Lord's presence. And for some people, that means going back to Bible camp. It means revisiting old high school friend that led you to the Lord. It means going back to places where you remember the Lord's spirit moving last. Return to that spot. Start from there and move forward again, but maybe don't pick the same path. So this... Sinai trip, 40 days, 40 nights. What's interesting is that's about, that's about a 200-mile trip. You can do that in a lot less than 40 days. So 40 days is either that Elijah has no sense of direction, just like the Israelites traveled in this wilderness for 40 years. So the, the 40 days, 40 nights is absolutely symbolic And what's going on here. It becomes symbolic of a time of renewal or a time of being lost for a bit. And just another point on renewal and getting out of depression. It's okay to just be lost for a season. And just being okay with that. You don't have to know what's next. You don't have to understand the direction. It's okay to just be faithful to the Lord and follow his will, even if it means going through a wilderness. So 40 days and 40 nights, we have this idea. It's clearly indicative of a time of just being maybe afloat in life like the ark or a time of wandering like Israel, or a time of defeat. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, same amount of time. So we see this idea that just being at the mercy of the elements for a while isn't such a horrible thing. Defeat can humble us in ways that have a really positive impact on our life for a long time to go. And these 40 days and 40 nights can set Elijah up for years of successful ministry. Because in the successful ministry, when you're tempted to get cocky again, you can remember those that time in the wilderness and go, uh-uh, without God's help, I'd still be in that wilderness. It's God that brought me out of that space. And I was just going to wander around forever there. We can note then how God renews. He brings companionship. He allows rest. He brings sustenance. He gives people time and just sits with them without accusation. He brings water in the jar, he brings patience, and then he plants a seed of hope and he allows time. And as humans, we want to fix things like right now, especially our misery, like so fast that we have an entire nation of people that will take a drug or a pill to fix their ministry instead of just working through it. And masking all of those things. So 40 days to wander, he ends up exactly where Moses was. And frankly, Mount Sinai does not have a bunch of caves. It's not like Mount Carmel or the, the Judean wilderness. Mount Carmel has a cave. There's the cave. Or this cleft in the rock, as it's called. So in verse 9, we, we get to this cave. Notice the, the predicate in front of it. And, and there he went to into a cave and spent the night in that place. Like we should know that place, right? And the reason for that is because of the nature of the geography there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I like that. That's like what I would ask my five-year-olds when they were in trouble. And they weren't quite in trouble yet. You just walk down. Grant loves when I tell these stories. You'd go down and they'd be like, have crayons everywhere and stuff on the walls. And you'd come down and go, what you doing, Grant? Grant. And they know darn well that they're not doing what they should do. And I love the fact that the Lord treats us like his children. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you out in Sinai? Why are you 400 miles away from where you should be? 200 miles, sorry. So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Well, you're alone, dummy because you left your guy back up at the border. But he, God doesn't say that because he's not working from the flesh. Like, he doesn't say that at all. So he's in the cave. Uh, the cave, by the way, Exodus 33. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory pass by, that I will put you in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover and we'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. Remember, God was going to reveal himself to Moses. And he has Moses go into this cleft. So most of the Jewish interpreters believe this is the spot where God met Moses. Notice here that in verse 9, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him. This is interesting. This isn't just a messenger. This is the word of the Lord. Who's the word of the Lord, right? This, I just think this stuff is cool. The word here is a title, right? It's the title of somebody where we don't know their name yet. And, and it has a voice and it talks, so it's an incarnate being standing in front of Elijah, not just a mere messenger. We've seen this before. Uh, Genesis 15-1 with Abraham, 1 Samuel three twenty one with Samuel, Malachi's burden was the word of the Lord, Malachi 1-1, Luke 22-6, Peter remembered what Jesus said, and if you want it straight up, here it is in John 1-1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life, and life was the light of men. This is a Christophany. This is an incarnation of God in human form, talking to Elijah before we knew the name of that incarnation, which is Jesus, by the way, for the new people. So God's incarnating. He's talking to Elijah. This is how he does that. What are you doing here, Elijah, is the question. Not because of God's ignorance, but because he wants Elijah to think about what he's doing. This is after 40 days of being sustained on God's food, right? There's a lot of grace and patience here for God, but at some point he says, how long are you going to be here? How long are you going to wallow, right? Even after somebody died in Jewish tradition, there was a period of mourning. They would sit Shiva together and they would just mourn and that's okay, but there's a time when you put off the black clothing and you move on. And so what are you doing here becomes the question. The answer, or Elijah's response, is typical of a passionate believer that's depressed. Because they're so passionate, why is nothing happening? Right? And I think a lot of people here can relate to that. You guys are fairly passionate believers being here on a Sunday night studying the Bible together. So I've been telling this person I know about Christ for years I got this family member I'm trying to convert. I got a coworker that I want to talk to Jesus about. I've been trying to share Jesus with people for years and nothing's happening. I'm so zealous for the Lord and nothing seems to be happening. No fruit. And that's frustrating. I've been doing all these things for you, God, but nobody seems to notice everything that I'm doing. Do you see the problem with that argument? God's not here to notice what you're doing. He's here for, he wants a servant that'll follow his will. I alone am left. <laughs> this is buried in the truth. God has to weed out this lie a little bit and because the lie is destroying Elijah. He keeps thinking he's alone. And on the hill at Mount Carmel, he had a servant with him. On his way down here, he had a servant that he left in, in Beersheba at the border. So at this point, yes, he's alone, but he's made himself alone. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. He's actually noticed that Jesus the incarnation of God doesn't argue with him at all. I just think this is fascinating because everything in me wants to argue. No, Elijah, that's not true. He doesn't argue with him. He shows him. Elijah feels alone, but by being there, he's counteracting that argument all by himself. Just his presence alone. Also note that there were 100 priests that were being hidden in caves that we know Elijah knew about. There's a hundred priests back there that don't have a leader because Elijah decided to come hang in the wilderness. So discouraged believers generally are isolated believers. One of the key answers for discouragement for an isolated believer is get your butt to fellowship, right? Well, I don't feel like going to fellowship. I don't care. Sit in the corner and be alone at fellowship. Don't do it down in the wilderness in a cave by yourself. It's the worst thing you can do, but sometimes, especially an exhausted brain, thinks really irrationally, right? Well, I'm just going to isolate more, and then I feel isolated, and the thing that he does by providing a presence there um, is he, he renews a fellowship with Elijah. Elijah's expected this massive power with explosive results Huge conversions. Jezebel becomes a Yahweh follower. And none of those things hand. The revival that Elijah wanted doesn't happen. And I love how God kind of responds to him. He shows him power. Yeah, the skies can open. The wind can blow. The earth can shake. The fire can fall on Mount Carmel. But that's not how God's going to operate. Because God couldn't do that, but he doesn't. They seek to take my life, Elijah says. That's true. Like you got a note from Jezebel, not a surprise. We often rail at the injustice that, and the, think about the logic of this, that's like, compare, like complaining that water is wet or that, that, that people are flawed. It's like complaining, well, these evil people are doing evil. And you're complaining about Jezebel being Jezebel. It's who she is. Here we are on the eve of, of an election, and y'all should vote. Please vote and I just got to get that in before the election. It's time to vote on Tuesday. But notice that this discouragement comes, and I think it's a confused thing that we do in politics too. Well, these politicians are corrupt. Uh Uh-huh. Like, yeah, that happens. So there's this idea that if, if Satan wants you dead, shouldn't you fight for life instead of praying for death? If Satan's trying to destroy you, isn't This silent discouragement, exactly what he wants to see happen in Elijah? So if you really want to fight that, do the opposite of that. People are trying to take your life. Yeah, they sure are, Elijah. Nothing like, and what else? Let's move on. So this great prophet of God can be so self-deceived as to pray for the same thing that Satan would pray for. We should beware of this kind of discouragement too if this guy can eventually pray for his own death and agree with Satan, and he's this mighty man of God, let's never make the mistake that despair is too far from our doorstep too. And when that happens, we get up, we eat, we renew, we rest, we find our time with the Lord, and the Lord says, what are you doing here? And it's a good question. We return to the basics of God's command. We worship, we give our sacrifice, we repent, We get into God's word. We go to fellowship even if we don't feel like it and we stand on the mountain of God once again and realize that even though after 40 days he's still before God's face, he can't run so far that God isn't right there. I love this. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's like, man, I thought I ran away from all humanity because that's what Sinai's like. Mount Sinai is like as far away from humanity as you can get on this planet. It is a desolate part of the world. We can work to outrun ourselves into exhaustion, but we need time with God, and that's exactly what God gives Elijah. So then he gives him a revelation. Then he gives him probably one of the most popular images in the Bible of what God looks like and how God operates, verse 11. And then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountain's and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. That's disturbing, right? I don't want to be on a mountain when an earthquake hits. Right? Like You're already feeling a little off. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. It's interesting about Mount Sinai. If, if you go there today, there are, the top of the mountain is black. And if you crack the rocks open, the rocks are not black on the inside. They're singed. So there's some kind of fire lit up the top of Mount Sinai, and you can still see it today. What's interesting in the wind is that the rocks break apart, and maybe Elijah would have seen that and gotten a little reminder that God was in this mountain before. It's not God's first visit to Mount Sinai. So the passage here is just recorded. It doesn't give a lot of message or interpretation. It's just this Raw manifestation of God's power in three different ways. Wind, earthquake, fire. Winds are common. Earthquakes are a little less common. Fire is overtly a miracle. But the passage, that it, at least the way it's presented, is that all three of them are miraculous in their demonstration of God's power. I think when Elijah's mistake was to think that there would be all these fireworks after Mount Carmel and there would be all this thing is that God's trying to say something like, well, yeah, I can exhibit that power. If you want to see that power, it's there. But that's not the way I'm going to speak to people because God mercifully backs off on it. So the Lord passes by. Same language as with Moses when he's on the mountain. The Lord passes by and then gives these three expressions. The Lord can do huge, powerful things, but he chooses the simple things. This is the God we serve. He can do whatever he wants, but he chooses in the end the still small voice. And the, a God that refrains his power, in my, in my head, he's even more powerful. Still small voice, in the Hebrew, it's, it's literally whisper thin, a whisper thin. It's barely there. Or if, if, if anything, it is as if silence could speak. And it's the idea of it's, it's so quiet. Silence could speak without destroying the silence, right? Is if that's even possible. For me, at least, this is the most common way that I've heard God in my life. And some we can talk about this afterwards, like, how do you hear God? But God speaks through this sp- still, small voice all the time. And when you talk to veteran believers, this is the most common way that God speaks to us. It's as though silence could speak. And you just hear this little nudge. And it often comes in these, like, singular sentences, Right? Just these, what are you doing here, Elijah? Those questions or those statements that are encouraging or they get us to think in the direction God wants us to think. The reshaping of our thoughts. God can do power, but he chooses gentleness. He chooses the little nudge. Did the display of power change Elijah? And the answer is no. He claims he's alone and that he's powerless. And then God shows him amazing power, which is a way to say you are not alone And you're not powerless if you lean on me. I just, this is better than answering Elijah's complaints. So it was, verse 13, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice, that voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is like when Peter, when the Lord says, do you love me, Peter? And he goes, I love you, Lord. Do you love me, Peter? I really love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah, I love you. There's a tone shift between the questions and the answers here. Same kind of situation. When the face gets wrapped in the mantle in verse 13, that implies deep humility. Like, I can't even show my face. And Moses had a really similar situation. Remember, there was that issue where he just felt like he had to cover himself. And before the power of an almighty God, as a wee little human, we see humans like fall to their knees and fall on their face before God. So the covering of the face with the mantle is an indication of humility. There's a change that happened in this situation between the first time he was asked and the second time he was asked. It says, suddenly the voice came to him. Hine kol el in the Hebrew. Look, voice, him. The voice stays. So there's all this commotion with the wind, all the shaking of the ground with the earth, The fire itself blasting, probably a reminder of Mount Carmel. And then there's just that little voice What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? We learn to hear God when we learn to listen to God. And we listen to God when we put the rest of the noise away. And it's even after the noise that we can see God's still there. Verse 14, he responds the exact same way, but there is a change of tone with that face, with the mantle covering his face. And he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. It's the same answer, but after the display of power, I would read this as having a totally different tone. Instead of bragging about his zealousness, he's confessing his zealousness. last time Elijah's came complaint came out of exhaustion this time he's moved to the edge of the cave and God showed that power and he says try again (laughs) God speaks but not by might, not my my power but my my spirit says the Lord that's how God speaks the same answer only I think this time Elijah's hearing himself in context and how petty this must have sounded to him after seeing that kind of power his heart's changing but his heart isn't wrong in what he wants. Like wanting to see the altars tore down. Wanting to see the justice for these prophets getting killed. Those things aren't bad things to hope for. He just stopped hoping for them. Then the Lord says to him. Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive. Anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel. And Elisha. The son of Shaphat and of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And yet I've reserved seven thousand in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed, bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now God gives him something to do. This is the last thing that brings Elijah back into the ministry. He gives him a task. He gets to anoint two more kings and he gets to anoint his own successor. And if your desire is to retire, what a great answer to prayer. Here's somebody who's going to take it up. In other words, your work doesn't end when your life ends because your work isn't your work, it's mine. And you're going to hand this off to Elijah. You're going to disciple somebody. So I think what a, what a when God gives us work to do, it's so renewing and so healing. But part of what he's going to have Elijah do is discipling the next generation to be ready to take the mantle. So God is doing a work, and he can judge Jezebel whenever he wants. He's got the power, but he desires repentance first. He wants the heart to change. So this provides confirmation that Ahab and Jezebel will be judged, because Elijah is going to anoint the next king. And this is kind of interesting, because he's anointing the king, a lot like with David, before the previous king is gone. So Ahab's still sitting there, but Elijah is going to get to, anoint, get to anoint Jehu. So that had to feel kind of good, right? It's to know that Saul's going to be done at some point and David's going to replace him. Hazael is king over Syria, a foreign enemy that's going to judge Ahab. So there's kind of an answer here, like you're going to anoint a foreign king because that king's going to bring justice on Jezebel and Ahab for him, and they do. And then Jehu, the same thing, whatever... Syria doesn't do to Ahab, Jehu is going to do to Ahab. And these prophets of Baal and and the injustice that's going on. And whatever Jehu doesn't take care of, Elisha is going to finish cleaning it up. So Elijah, your ministry hasn't been in vain. And you're not alone. That last sentence is a great message of just assurance. I've reserved 7,000 in Israel. In other words, there's 7,000 people that have seen the example of Elijah and they've stayed true to Yahweh because, in part, of Elijah's model and of what his work has been doing. It assures that there's been wrongs done and that God's got it handled and that he's got a plan. Elijah's life hasn't been in vain. It's just that it hasn't been revealed to Elijah what the impact has been. And that Elisha that's gonna replace you, he's gonna finish the things that you thought needed to happen in your lifetime. There's a plan here, Elijah. It's just my plan, it's not your work. Notice that it says in verse 18 God is saying, I have reserved 7,000. It's not that Elijah had 7,000 followers, it's that God's using the ministry of all his people to encourage each other. So you got all these people hanging out, meeting together. Not very well known because they're in an oppressive government. And God knows exactly who those people are. And he has a head count. Elijah's z- zealous fervor failed to recognize that God is running things. Because he's thinking it's what he's doing, not what God's doing. But God's got it handled. So Elijah follows Elisha follows Elijah. So verse 19, so he departed from there. His obedience is what gets him out of his troubles too. God tells him to do something and he just does it. And found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. Um, It's interesting that he doesn't do it in the order that he's told to do it, but then God didn't tell him he had to do it in a particular order because the first thing on the list was the king of Syria, but the first thing he does is he gets a companion. And I think that's part of being alone and being alone all the time. If one of the three things is a companion, somebody to work with and live life with, that's where Elijah actually starts. he, He goes and finds his friend. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him and he was the 12th. He was with the 12th. If you try to imagine that in your head, you think that's a lot of oxen in the field at one time (laughs) because 12 yoke of oxen would actually be 24 oxen. But one person can kind of run two of them. So this says a few things about Elijah. First of all, he's pretty wealthy, like to have that many teams of oxen working through your field. Um, and Elijah's with one of them. Then Elijah passed him by and threw his mantle on him. So if they're plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, Elisha is a large-scale farmer during this period of history, like absolutely in, in the wealthy category. Um, and it implies that there's at least 11 servants that work with Elisha on this. The symbol of the mantle being put on his shoulder is the known symbol of the role of the prophet being handed to him. This is the way that a prophet would invite a prophet to come and work with him or serve him. Elijah basically comes up and says, Come follow me. And Elisha walks away from his yoke of oxen. Verse 20, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back, for what have I done to you? This is an interesting response. And we're in the Gospels right now where Jesus calls the disciples and he says, come follow me. And the disciples leave everything and they come follow him. Elijah seems with this, go back again, like go back to talk to your parents for what have I done to you? Again, we get this sense that Elijah has horrible people skills. Like that is just not a nice thing to say. Like what am I to you, right? And, 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 and I don't think this is a rebuke. Um, when Elijah calls him, he doesn't make a big deal out of it when God Himself calls people to follow Him, it is a big deal to go back and do something else. So Elijah wants to honor Elisha wants to honor his parents. Elijah's like, "Yep, go ahead and kiss your parents goodbye." In Matthew 8:21, yet another of his disciples said to him, "Lord, suffer me first to go bury my father." But Jesus said to him, "Follow me and let the dead bury their dead." Same situation, almost, but a burial would be like a seven-day event. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to wait around for you that long. But going back to kiss your parents goodbye takes like a few minutes to just say goodbye. And I think with Elijah, he's trying to honor his parents. And, you know, you don't just take off and leave the oxen behind and let the servants tell them what's going on. And I think with the Jesus situation, this guy was looking for excuses that were tying him back to his old life. And Jesus' thing is like, dead people don't know if you're at their funeral or not. so. What difference does that make? But you get a really, a a same sense, or you can see why Jesus and Elijah get compared to each other. In context, it doesn't sound like a rebuke. The what have I done in the Hebrew is, what have I fashioned? What have I made? In other words, I'm just getting to know you. Your parents are the ones that fashioned you. They made you. So when Elijah says, what have I done? It's kind of like, well, I haven't made you. So of course you go back and tell your parents that you're coming with me. Because Ida can't take credit for anything at this point. So overall is a very different character than the one that ran away from Ahab. This is somebody who's just a little more patient. You don't see the Elijahs just running around and zipping all over the place. He's like, sure, yeah, you can go back and say bye to your parents. So Elijah turns back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people. This would be the other 11 people working the field. And they ate And then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Really simple. Interesting that he kills the oxen and burns the yoke with it. Like, there's no going back is kind of the image of that, but there's still 11 teams of oxen. It's not like he destroyed the farm for all these other people. So he destroys his yoke and his oxen, has a big feast. That had to have blessed the workers. If you're out in the field working all day to get a nice oxen burger, that had to be pretty good for these people. So it would be a welcome meal in the middle of their work. He rises, he follows Elijah and becomes his servant. There's no problems for Elisha to be humbly following another person. So even if he was kind of a leader on this team, uh, we now welcome Elisha to the scene. So now we get me constantly mixing up the names Elijah and Elisha. So this is going to happen for the rest of the Bible study for the next 10 years. I'm just going to tell you that. But you get these two characters side by side. And what we're going to see is that these two people together are so much better than Elijah by himself. And the power of these two working together is going to be really impactful. And Elijah's ministry is just going to take off where, where, where Elisha's ministry will take off where Elijah's um, leaves off. So that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we open your word with the great just understanding that it's here for our teaching. It's here for us to learn from. Lord, as we go through our lives, there's going to be valleys and victories. And Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom when we're in the valleys to do some of the things we read about tonight. Lord, to follow your encouragement and your coaxing so that we can once again hear your voice. And Lord, how much better a life lived when we can hear your still small voice guiding us through it. How much more exciting that life is. And Lord, how much more connected that life is. I thank you that coming out of his journey in the wilderness, Elijah found Elisha. And that these two can be brothers, they can follow you together, and they can serve you together. And what a gift that is for both of them. Lord, help us in the fellowship as a body. Lord, help us to connect to one another and help us to be, um, have a unity of love and a unity of being in a journey together. This journey is going to be a long one and none of us are strong enough for it. So Lord, help us to renew ourselves in your presence with your word. And may the word of the Lord come talk to us too. Lord, we want to have you, we want you in our lives, and we want your voice guiding us at each and every step. In Jesus' name, amen.